At some point in our Christian journey, we all make mistakes. We mess up, we screw up, we foul up, and we fail by falling in and to sin. Because there is no such thing as sinless perfection in this life, at some point, we come to the realization that as singer-songwriter Donnie McCurkin puts it, a saint is just a sinner who fell down, got back up again. Now, I know sometimes we don't, we don't feel, think, or act like saints, but we're saints. So who is a saint? According to God's word, Paul says in writing to Ephesian believers, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, whether you feel like it or not, you are a saint if you are in Christ Jesus. But then, you know, since God's word says all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God, we need to be mindful that, that saints must be humble and honest about sinning. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we try to pass the buck. The Bible tells us if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. But then God is good. He's always got your back, doesn't he? The Bible tells us, God says, we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you see, it's not a matter of if, but when we fall to sin. We will always fall at some point or another. Being a saint who is not exempt from struggling with sin, the Apostle Paul provides some unique insights for understanding how we are to respond when we fall. Reading from our text is from Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 14 to 25. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, otherwise known as the NLT. Reading. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living within me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. 
I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. May the Lord add a blessing to the public reading of his precious word to our hearts today. When we fall due to our struggle with sin, first of all, it is because there is no control of human sin by spiritual law. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. Now, in past tense is how Paul speaks of his life up to this point. Painful is how he describes the deep conviction of sin that the ministry of law had put him through up to this point. In present tense, he, is now, he now speaks of his experience since being born again, describing his conflicting two natures and how finding deliverance from the power of indwelling sin in his own strength is so, so impossible for him. It's a source of great encouragement for believers today to know that the Apostle Paul had the same struggles that we have today. Paul admits up front that the trouble is not with the law because he says the law is spiritual and good, meaning that the law is absolutely holy and totally beneficial to me. He confesses that he is the problem by saying the trouble is with me. Now the phrase, I am all too human, is similar to an expression that many people use today when they try to rationalize sin by saying, I'm only human. Same expression Paul uses here. Paul realizes that because he's having no victory over the power of indwelling sin in his life, he is human, which means he's carnal. Of the flesh or characterized by the flesh, according to the ancient Greek text. It describes a person who can and should behave differently, but does not. Therefore, portraying an act of willful disobedience. So being human is being fleshly or carnal. By saying I'm all too human, Paul understands that the law really can't help him out here. The law will only help him if he's innocent. But Paul knows that he's guilty 
And so the law argues against him instead of for him. By describing himself as a slave to sin, Paul visualized being owned like a slave with sin as his dominant master. That's how he sees himself. Even though Paul says, I'm all too human or, or carnal or of flesh, doesn't mean he's not a Christian. In fact, the awareness that he is all too human is evidence that God has indeed done a redemptive work in him. Commenting on this text, reformer Martin Luther says this, and I quote, that is the proof of the spiritual and wise man. He knows that he is carnal and he is displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he is spiritual. But the proof of a foolish, carnal man is this, that he regards himself as spiritual and is pleased with himself, end of quote. So when we fall due to our struggle with sin, it's because there is no control of human sin by spiritual law. So one of the lessons we learned from Paul's experience today is that just knowing the rules don't prevent doing wrong. Secondly, when we fall due to our struggle with sin, there is a consciousness of helplessness. Verses 15 to 19. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. We've all had that, been there, done that moment. When we, like Paul, stepped back and said, I don't really understand myself. What's wrong with me? It's quite often from this text that Paul was having a problem, and it sure wasn't a lack of desire. Because he says in verse 15b, I want to do what is right. So it's not a lack, it's not a, a, a lack of desire. What is also obviously even worse is that he knows that he can't claim deliverance because his problem isn't a lack of knowledge. He says so. In verse 16 he says, I know what I'm doing is wrong. Was Paul so particularly sinful that he just can't break free? Absolutely not. The reality is Paul's sensitivity about his moral failure intensified the more closer he got 
to God. In other words, see a Christian who is not painful, whose sin is not painful to them, and you see a person who's not close to God at all. I remember Sister Nita's mother talking about her, her son, Michael, one day. He was screaming and hollering, and, and she went in and found out what was going on. And he says, I have sinned. I have sinned against Jesus. For Michael, that was painful. See a person whose, whose sin is not painful to them, and you see someone who's not close to God at all. Because of a war inside all of us, like Paul, we often admit I know what I'm doing is wrong. And then in the latter part of the verse, he says, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Paul knows what the right thing is because he recognizes the internal struggle as a validation of the law. He agrees with the law that the law is good and what he is doing is wrong. Here's another lesson we learned from Paul's experience. There is no success in struggling in one's own strength. Self-determination is no advantage at all. Verse 17, he says, so I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Sounds like an excuse, isn't it? Is Paul denying his responsibility as a sinner? Absolutely not. He acknowledges that as he sins, he acts against his own new man in Christ. He's admitting that. Here we see the culprit is not the new man in Christ, but the sinful, corrupt nature that dwells in him. Now, we need to, we need to be cautious here. Cautious is needed to avoid excusing our sinning by blaming it on indwelling sin. We and we alone are responsible for every single thing that we do. And this word should not be used to what we might call pass the buck. What Paul is doing here is simply tracing the origin of his sinful behavior, not excusing it. Verse 18, and I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. So in verse 17 and 18, we see what the heart of the problem really is. It is a lack of power. Paul lacks the power because the law gives no power. In other words, the law, said, the law says, here are the rules, and if you know what's good for you, you better obey them. But it gives no power for obeying or keeping them. Nothing good lives in him, Paul says, because he struggles in the flesh, according to what we saw in verse 18. Even though our old self was crucified with Christ, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, our flesh was not. Our sin nature was put to death, but our flesh remains alive and kicking. 
So here's another lesson we learned from Paul's experience. As Christians, we must own up to our sin, yet realize that the urge to sin does not come from who we really are in Jesus Christ. Holiness cannot progress until we learn what Paul learned here. Nothing good lives in me, Paul says. That is, in my sinful nature. Sinful nature is the flesh. It is the evil, corrupt nature inherited from Adam and which is still in every single blood-bought, redeemed child of God today. Every one of us. The sinful nature is the root of every single evil action which a person does. Paul says there's nothing good in it at all. Until we learn this, we cannot be delivered from looking for any good in that old nature. Learning this also delivers us from any disappointment of not finding any good in that old nature. Learning this delivers us from occupation with ourselves. There is no victory in reflection, none whatsoever. As Bible scholar Robert Scott Bushane says, for every look we take at ourselves, we should take 10 looks at Christ. And among many Bible scholars, Augustine, Luther, and Calvin all believe that Paul was describing a sincere Christian who faces ordinary temptations in living the Christian life on a day-to-day basis. The hopelessness of the sinful nature is confirmed by Paul's grief that even though he has the desire to do what is right, what he does not have is the inner resources to put that desire into action. Paul was describing himself in present tense, according to verse 18 and 19. He had a deep respect for the law, mind you. Even as a Christian, he had, he had, he had an intense desire to walk in God's will, as he says. However, when he tried to do it in his own strength, he was a miserable failure. So when we fall due to our struggle with sin, there was a consciousness of helplessness. Thirdly, when we fall due to our struggle with sin, there is a conflict between two selves. Verse 20 to 23. Well, if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin. The sin that is still within me. Now, if we paraphrase this verse, it would read like this. But if I, the old nature, do what I, the new nature, don't want to do, I, the new nature, am not really the one doing wrong. 
It is sin living in me, the old nature, that does it. Now, again, it must be clearly understood here that Paul is not excusing himself or avoiding his sinful responsibility. He is simply saying that he, does, he has not found the deliverance from the power of indwelling sin, and that whenever he does sin, it's not with the new nature's desire. Look at verse 21. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Anyone who has tried to be or do good is profoundly aware that this, of this struggle because we never know how hard it is to stop sinning until we try. Many of us have been there. As C.S. Lewis once said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. Verse 22. I love God's law with all my heart. Paul knows that his real inner man has a great delight in God's law. He says he understands that the urge to sin comes from another power within me. He knows that the real self is the one who really loves God's law. The old man is not the real Paul. The old man is dead. The sinful nature is not the real Paul. The sinful nature is destined to pass away and be resurrected. The new man is the real Paul. Now Paul's challenge is to live like God has made him. Among Christians, there are those, there has been an ongoing debate about Paul, whether Paul was a Christian during the experience he describes here in chapter 7. Some see his struggle with sin as, and believe that he must have, it must have been before he was born again. It had to be. Others believe that he was just a Christian struggling with sin. And in a sense, such questioning is, irre is irrelevant because this is a struggle of anyone who tries to obey God in their own strength. Every single one. This is something that the Christian may do, but it's something that the non-Christian can only do. The real point of the text is that it describes a man who is trying to be good and holy by his own efforts and is defeated every time by the power of indwelling sin. And so it describes anyone, saved or unsaved, Verse 23, but there's another power within me that is at work with my mind, with, with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Sin is able to war inside the apostle Paul and win because there's no power inside himself other than himself to stop sinning. 
This power inside is the sin nature deep within each of every single one of us. This is our weakness to sin. It relates to everything within us that has more loyalty to our selfish and old way of living than it does to God. In other words, Paul is caught in the desperate powerlessness of trying to fight sin in the power of self. How many of us have tried that? Great tension is a daily Christian experience. The struggle is that even though we agree with God's commands, we just can't obey them. The result is a painful awareness of our sin. The internal struggle with sin is as real for Paul as it is for every single one of us today. But what, what can we learn from Paul about it? Whenever he struggled with sin, with, with the, 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 the overpowering feelings of this spiritual battle, Paul returned to the beginnings of his spiritual life by remembering how Jesus Christ had freed him from sin. So when we look at these verses, in a nutshell, verses 19 to 23, even though our identity changes when we come to Christ, our location stays the same. So we have a difference between who we are and where we live. Based on the finished, an emphasis on finished, sacrificial work of Christ, we are totally redeemed, totally sanctified, and totally brand new in Christ. But we live in a body contaminated by flesh. So when we as Christians sin, we are no longer the ones doing it. It is the sin that lives in us, according to verse 20. By saying this, Paul is in no way excusing his sin. He is simply reminding us that our true identity is no longer found in our actions or even in, in, in keep sinning. Evil is present with me even when I want to do what is good, according to what he says in verse 21. Notice that Evil is with me, but it doesn't define me. Paul says, my eye has changed from sinner to saint. This means that whenever sin wants me to define myself by what I'm doing wrong, I am reminded that I am defined by God because of who I am in Christ Jesus. And so another lesson we learned from Paul's experience here is when we have a feeling of confusion and the appeal of sin tries to overpower us, let's claim the freedom given us by Christ and depend on his power, which can lift us to victory and only his power. So when we fall due to our struggle with sin, it highlights a conflict between two selves. Fourthly, when we fall due to our struggle with sin, there is, a, there is desperation 
and perspective. Verse 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? The ancient Greek word for miserable literally means wretched through exhaustion and hard labor. Paul is totally worn out and miserable because of his unsuccessful efforts to please God under the principle of the law. It's not working. He's miserable. He's wretched. He's exhausted. He's worn out. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that the great saints throughout the ages didn't really, didn't usually talk about how good they were. Instead, they were more outspoken about their sinfulness and their unworthiness. Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone, for I'm a man sinful with sin, with, 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 of sinfulness. And there were many others. Didn't talk about how good they were. Legalism always have a way of bringing a person face to face with their own miserableness. And if they continue in legalism, they'll react in one of two ways. Either they will deny their miserableness and become self-righteous like the Pharisees did, or they will express desperation because of their miserableness and give up following God. In other words, they'll backslide. Oh, what a miserable person I am, Paul says. The full tone of the statement displays Paul's desperation for deliverance. He's overwhelmed with a sense of his own powerlessness and sinfulness. To find victory, we must come to this same place of desperation in our lives. Our desire must go beyond a vague hope to do better. We must cry out against sin and cry out to God with the same kind of desperation that we see Paul exhibiting in our text today. In verses 24 and 25, Paul recognizes what many Christians sometimes miss, that he is helpless to resolve his own problem. He says, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Throughout this chapter, Paul has struggled to pull himself out of his internal war. But like battling quicksand, he found that the more he struggled, the deeper he sank. In other words, he got absolutely nothing from the power of positive thinking. Who will free me? Paul shows now a perspective. Before we saw desperation, but now we see perspective. As he, as he finally turns to someone outside of himself. Beginning at uh, verse 13 of chapter 7, Paul has referred to himself some 40 times. In Paul's unsuccessful struggle against sin 
He became totally self-focused and self-obsessed. And this is the place any believer living under law who looks to self and personal performance rather than looking to Jesus Christ will find themselves in. The words, who will free me, shows that Paul has given up on himself. He asks, who will free me, instead of how will I deliver myself? It's not an expression of someone who is despondent or doubting, but of someone breathless and gasping for deliverance. Who will free me from this, this life that is dominated by sin and death? Ancient kings sometimes tormented their prisoners by shackling them to decomposing corpses. Bible scholar and preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon gives this graphic picture, and I quote, It was the custom of ancient tyrants when they wished to put men to the most fearful punishments to tie a dead body to them, placing the two back to back. And there was the living man with a dead body closely strapped to him, rotting, putrid, corrupting, and this he must drag with him wherever he went. Now this is just what the Christian has to do. He has within him the new life. He has a living and undying principle which the Holy Spirit has put within him. But he feels that every day he has to drag about with him this dead body, this body of death, a thing as loathsome, as hideous, as abominable to his new life as a dead, stinking carcass would be to a living man. End of quote. Paul longs to be cut free from this life that is dominated by sin and death that is clinging to him. So when we fall, due to our struggle with sin, it, it emphasizes both desperation and perspective. So here's a principle that we can live by with regards to this inner conflict. Even though we sincerely desire to walk in God's will, we should expect inner struggles when choosing between doing right and doing wrong. Finally, last verse, when we fall due to our struggle with sin, there is a need to look outside of self to the Savior. Verse 25, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Paul finally looks outside of himself to Jesus. Until he lifted his eyes to the only one who could rescue him, 
his situation was totally and absolutely hopeless. Then out of nowhere, like a bolt of lightning, he says, thank God. Thank God the answer. There is an answer. And the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul sees himself as standing between, see, see, see Jesus standing between himself and God, bridging the gap and providing a way to God to get some kind of relief from his miserableness. By using the term Lord, Paul emphasizes that he has finally put Jesus in the rightful place in his life. He acknowledges our struggle with sin, which, by the way, is a struggle between corruption and grace. But he thanks God for the victory in Jesus. But, you know, Paul in no way, whatever, whatsoever, pretends that looking to Jesus will take away the struggle. Why? Because Jesus works in us, not instead of us, to battle against sin. The glorious truth remains. As the hymn writer says, there is victory in Jesus. Jesus didn't come and die just to give us more and better rules to live by, but to live out victories through those who believe and accept him. The message of the gospel is that there is victory over sin and hate and death and all evil as we surrender our lives to Jesus and let him live that victory out through us. Paul shows that even though the law is glorious and good, it just can't save us. So we need a savior. Paul never found any kind of peace or reason for praising God until he looked outside of himself and beyond the law to his savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, Listen, maybe you thought your problem was not knowing what to do to save yourself. Then a teacher came along and taught you about what you ought to do. But nothing changed. Nothing changed because you didn't really need a teacher. What you needed was a savior. Maybe you thought your problem was that uh, not being motivated enough. Then the law came along like a coach and encouraged you about doing what was needed. But nothing changed. Nothing changed because you didn't really need a coach or a motivational speaker. What you needed was a savior. Maybe you thought that your problem was you didn't know yourself well enough. Then the law came along like a doctor, perfectly diagnosed your sin problem, but it couldn't heal you. Because you see, you really didn't need a doctor. What you needed was a savior. Do you have a savior to look to? Paul 
had a savior. He looked to a savior. Do you have a savior to look to today, my friend? If we look at the text, we'll notice that from verses 9 through 25, the prominence of the first person pronouns are, are, are evident. I, me, myself, my, myself, occurs more than 40 times in the text. Without a doubt, like Paul, anyone who have this Romans 7 experience have a vitamin I problem. Their search for victory in self where it could never be found makes them introspective to the very core. So when we fall due to our struggle with sin, it prompts a need to look outside of self to the Savior. And so as we close and reflect and respond, the question is, while Paul was referring to the struggle all sincere Christians face, how does the inner conflict he described also apply to unbelievers or carnal Christians who understand the message of the word of God and are resisting the convicting power of the Holy Spirit? That's the question of the day. That is the question we must answer when we look at Paul's experience. I conclude as I began by saying at some point on our Christian journey, we all make mistakes. We mess up, we screw up, we foul up, and we fail by falling into sin because there's no such thing as sinless perfection on this side of glory. At that point, we realize, like the Apostle Paul did, that a saint is just a sinner who fell down and got back up again. So here's a principle to live by regarding this inner conflict that we have ongoing. Paul provides a picture of all Christians who love God's word and who in their hearts desire to obey God's word, to obey God fully. However, even as sincere believers, we are not delivered from the temptation to regress to old patterns of sinful behavior. Watch it! Temptation will always be there. It's not a matter of if, but when we fall due to our struggle with sin. It's because there's no control of human sin by spiritual law. A consciousness of helplessness. A conflict between two selves. Desperation and perspective. A need to look outside of self to the Savior. Thank God. Thank God. The answer 
is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for a Savior who is there, a Savior who completed the work of redemption. We thank you, Father, for the power of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken today in no uncertain terms about our daily experience in this life. You have given us the reality of what we go through on a day-to-day -day basis. You've reminded us, Lord, of who we are and who we are to be in Christ Jesus. You have shown us from the life of a saint of yours what is needed and how we are to respond and how we are to react and what we are to be. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be receptive to thy still small voice in those moments when we have a tendency to ignore the convicting power of your indwelling presence. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Help us to lean on you and depend on the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for being our ever-present, all-sufficient Savior. Help us to demonstrate our love for you in obedience to your word. And as a result, get glory for yourself, Lord, for your word reminds us that whatever we do, we are to do it for your glory. And so we pray, Lord, that as your word has gone forth, that it would continue to saturate our hearts and our minds and that we would be receptive to make the appropriate application as needed. For we ask this in Christ's name, our Savior, our Lord, our soon-returning King, in whose name we pray. Amen.